0: I was wrestling with the question I asked you last week that Paul asked Jesus, as recorded by Luke, this physician that wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the next book in your Bible called the book of Acts. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, came to the persecutor of the church, the most feared persecutor of the church in the ancient world was a man named um, Paul. He had stood, he was part of the first martyring of of a Christian. And the resurrected Jesus met him on the road, and Paul said, Jesus asked him a very simple question. Here was the question. He said, Paul, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And so I've been asking you that over the last couple weeks as we move towards, you know, this last Sunday in June. What, What are you waiting for? It's a real question asked by the real risen Jesus to a real man just like you. So as I read our devotions, I've been reading these devotions along with you guys. I read something this week that struck me in the devotions about the concept of public declaration. That's what, that's what this is. That's what baptism is. It's not saving anybody. Uh, baptism, you're saved through faith, right? Not by your works. But baptism is this public declaration. Uh, where you're identifying yourself with Jesus through his death as you go under the water, through his new life, being raised up to new life as you come out of the water. And it's done in front of witnesses because you're kind of outing yourself and you're saying, in a sense, I'm with him. And so I pondered the question of Paul this week. What is it that keeps us from getting baptized? And as I read the Luke devotions, I came to an uncomfortable conclusion about us. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just me and some of us, but... um, I came to an uncomfortable conclusion about what keeps us from publicly identifying ourselves with Jesus, and I wanted to share it with you. And by way of introduction, I want to introduce you to my Aunt Joyce. They'll put a picture of my Aunt Joyce up. Here she was, probably in her um, 50s, uh, at our New Year's Eve party in 1999, uh, it was turning to the year 2000, and my Aunt Joyce was at my house. Now. Um, when you grow up, you think that whatever's going on in your house is normal, right? And so over time, you start to realize that things aren't normal. Uh, my Aunt Joyce had cerebral palsy. She was born um, with a sig- significantly um, challenged by cerebral palsy to the point that she could not walk very well. She could not communicate great, yet it was not easy to always understand what she was saying. Um, she was uh, palsied in, in many of her limbs. Um, and so as a kid... I didn't realize there was anything wrong with my Aunt Joyce. I just thought that I had a cool aunt that liked the color with me. So when I colored, Aunt Joyce would color with me. As I got a little older and started becoming aware of what was going on in the world and how people looked and behaved, I started to realize that my aunt was different than other people. Now, this was the 1970s, and uh, political correctness had not come into our world yet, and so the word retarded was a word that was thrown around quite a bit and probably was the number one insult on the school bus. Uh, on your way to school, what are you retarded? Um, I remember one time when my brothers, and as a true story, I forgot to share it in the first service, Um, still resonates with me, just hit me, when my brother and I were chasing each other around the dining room table one night uh, on the old wooden floors and you'd slide as you chased each other, and we we were calling each other a name, we were calling each other retarded. And my mother came out and started crying and said, stop saying that word, don't ever say it again. And we said, why? And she said, because your aunt is retarded. And so I started to realize that there was something different about my aunt. I remember when I was at my grandparents' house one time, my my grandmother raised my aunt to the day she died, to the day my grandmother died and my mom took over. We were at my grandfather's house. My grandfather was going to take my aunt for a walk around the neighborhood, and it was a long process to take my aunt for a walk, but it was good for her, and so my grandfather did it regularly. And I remember I was sleeping over, and so I was going to go for a walk with him. And you know, I was like this little 10-year-old, I probably weighed 65 pounds, 40 of which was probably in my head, which I was trying to balance on my 20-pound body. But man, I had this protective thing about my aunt, and and I remember, I can very clearly remember, we were getting ready to leave and I was on their back porch and I had my fist balled. Because if anybody said anything about my aunt on that walk, I was gonna punch them as hard as my 10-year-old body could right in their mouth, as soon as they said something about my aunt. And so that shows this great chivalry and bravery of your pastor. But I have to also share with you something else I thought about this week. Um, When my grandfather came to my house when I was a little boy and Aunt Joyce was there, I remember one time he said, I'm going to take Aunt Joyce for a walk, and uh, I was invited to go along, and I did not want to go along. Because, you see, in South Plainfield, where my grandmother lived, it was easy to be identified with my Aunt Joyce. In the neighborhood I lived in, where you had kind of the 1970s thug culture going on, When you're the smallest kid on the high school bus, being identified with Aunt Joyce was not going to be a very comfortable thing for me. And I remember sheepishly bailing out of the walk because at that moment I thought to myself, I love my aunt but I don't really want to be identified with her in town. It's amazing what we'll do to make sure that we get identified with the right people and make sure that we don't get identified with the wrong people, isn't it? I mean, I don't know who, nobody teaches, no parent teaches their kid this, but somehow we figure it out quickly, right? And I'd like to tell you that all that stuff, oh, it just ends at at the, when the high school cafeteria door closes when you graduate, but it doesn't. At least it hasn't for me. I'm 49 years old. I know. I shouldn't have said that. I'll regret that I said that. I'm 49 years old. I still care way, see right here, right? I still care way too much about what you think about me. I still care way too much about how I'm identified. I still care way too much about who I'm identified with because I, being identified with people comes with, with benefits or costs. And see, I like benefits. I like being identified with cool people, with rich people, with successful people. I mean, that's, I, mean, I wanna be seen with those people. I'm not a big fan of being identified with people that are gonna cost me something. This writer, Luke, he, as, he, as he writes this story, the most detailed description of Jesus's life, he was a doctor by trade. Earlier in the book, before this week's readings, you did see this, but it was earlier, he encouraged us to get a second opinion uh, on, on on who we identify ourselves with and what the cost and benefit structure looks like of who you choose to identify with. Let me show you, and then I'll fast forward to this week's devotions. This is Jesus. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Another translation says soul. Now here's what I want you to see. He he takes identity and he ties it to your willingness to pay the cost for being identified with someone. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See Jesus early on said, if you want to be my disciple, and that's a fancy religious word, but it just means if you want to be my follower, if you want to be a student of mine, you're going to need to identify with me, and you need to understand when you identify with me publicly, it comes with a cost. It comes with a cross. Maybe not for you, a wooden one with nails and thorns, for very few of us are going to be called to be martyrs. But when you identify with me, you will get a cross of one kind or another. And if the cost of it makes you too ashamed to, conf- to, to, to follow, if the cost is too embarrassing for you to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then what Jesus is saying is I'm not, I'm not saying anything against you, I'm just saying the reality is you're not really a disciple. Now, here's the amazing part of this Jesus we follow. If you know the stories of the Bible, the most famous disciple probably out there is Peter. And Peter knows this teaching about being ashamed of Jesus. In fact, Jesus has a dinner with him. We we celebrated it last week, the the first communion dinner. We call it the Last Supper. And at that supper... Jesus tells Peter and the rest of the disciples, guys, there is going to be a cost associated with following with me, with identifying with me, and I want you to understand, when it comes, you're all going to abandon me. But crazy, bold, old Peter, maybe you're like this. Sometimes I am. He tells Jesus, nope, not me, Jesus. I am not ashamed of my Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to be, oh, you don't have to worry about me, Jesus. I am all right with being identified with you. I am happy to be a Jesus follower. Jesus kind of looks at Peter, and Peter goes on. He says, Jesus, I want to, let me make this very clear to you, Jesus. I will never abandon you. He says, look, even if all the rest of these guys, Peter was competitive too. If all the rest of these guys, if they they fail, you can count on me. Then he goes, he keeps talking. He almost lets Jesus just kind of stare at him, and he keeps trying to convince Jesus. And then he says, Jesus, quote, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Jesus, I am not ashamed of you, man. I don't care about the cost. I got your back, boy. And then we, of course, fast forward a couple chapters in Dr. Luke's retelling of the story. And then they seized Jesus, And they led him away, the authorities, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them, and a servant girl seeing at him, I think we have the wrong translation up there, so bear with me as we go through, this might be a little different on the board. Um, A servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, well this man was also with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of then an hour, still another instead, or insisted saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. See, when it came time for a cost to be paid, Peter starts out ashamed of Jesus and winds up ashamed of himself. When it came time to be identified with Jesus, when the public identification might have had a cost, Peter hides who he really is. Uh, Courtney and I were talking about it as we drove the to church this, today, uh, thinking about this talk and, and what we had been watching this weekend together. Perhaps, just perhaps, this world we find ourselves in and complain so bitterly about today has no bigger problem than this. That the followers of Jesus in it, instead of following him boldly and publicly, instead we just follow him privately in our own minds and we hide and we put on airs or masks to just appear no different than everybody else. I heard a stupid story this week of a guy that was so desperate for a job that as he's combing the, the ads, he sees that one's available at his local zoo and his family needs the money, so he goes out and applies for the job. He gets there. The guy who's in charge tells him, listen, we don't talk about this in the ad. There's only actually one job available here that's open. Here's the deal. A while ago, our gorilla died. And when he was in captivity... It it was great, it brought lots of crowds in, but we don't have the funds to replace him with a real, authentic gorilla. So here's the job. We'll pay you money to put on a gorilla suit and get in a cage and pretend to be a gorilla. Now, this is a man of some accomplishment in life. He's initially offended by this offer. His mother didn't raise him to be a gorilla, but he's desperate for the work. So he does what most of us would probably do, you know, that need the money. He says, All right. He puts on the gorilla suit and he gets in the cage. And at first, you know, it's pretty embarrassing. He's not too excited about it. But the more he's there, the more he starts getting into it, you know. And soon he becomes fairly enthusiastic. And the crowds become quite convinced by his behavior that he really is a gorilla. And so, He builds up some, you know, fame and and, and renown in the gorilla cage, and one day he's swinging on vines. He's gotten very good at this from side to side, so incredibly enthusiastically, in fact, that he swings right over the top of the wall from his cage into the next cage, which is where they kept the lion. And in an instant, as you can imagine, the lion is upon him. He feels the hot breath of the lion in his face, and he starts to forget the whole cover-up thing. And in his desperation and panic, he he starts to scream out, Help me! Get me out of here! you got to imagine the look of the onlookers, right, as they they hear a gorilla screaming in English, right? And as he's panicking, he's screaming in his house, all of a sudden, he hears a voice coming from the lion. Shut up, you idiot, or we'll both be fired! And it turned out there wasn't one authentic creature in the whole zoo. (laughs) They were all hiding. They all had a mask on, appearing to be something that they really weren't. And that is standard behavior for human beings. It's in the DNA code somewhere. If you go all the way back to the beginning of time, to to what the Bible describes as the fall of man, God comes to the the garden right after the fall, and he cries out to Adam and Eve. He asks them a question. He says, where are you guys? Why? Because the first thing they did was hide. They hid from each other and they hid from God. Sin and fear and worry about what Adam might think of me and what Eve might think about me now, what God is going to think, how they're going to react, how he's going to act. Fear creeps in and it always leads to the same place, the bushes. I'll just, maybe if I just, I'll just hide here. And so, in our Christianity, we love to come and sing on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday, we have more of a a faith that we're practicing kind of in silence, as if we, we kind of are in the forsythia bushes. But I can't wonder, can't help but wonder how things would change if the followers of Jesus, I hate to use the word, but Jesus used it, if the followers of Jesus weren't so ashamed of him, and if we would just come out, to our friends and our families to say, hey, you know what? I haven't really shared this with you before, but I need to, I want to show you who I am. Uh, here's the deal. I've come to believe Jesus is who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life. And you know, I'm trying now to follow him the best I can. I'm gonna live for him now. I mean how much would change in our world if the followers of Jesus would stop being ashamed of them? In your world, your home, your office. Now, if you know the Bible, you know Peter's story doesn't end in the bushes. Peter's story with Jesus doesn't end with him hiding. It doesn't end with him guilt-ridden. Jesus refuses to let his story end that way, and I think he refuses to let your story end that way, too. After his resurrection, Jesus comes and seeks out and finds Peter. Jesus does not write him off. So you have to understand the whole entire teaching of the Scriptures. Jesus is not saying, well, you better not be ashamed of me, because if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. He was simply saying, look, the reality of the situation is, if you're ashamed of me, you're not going to be following me into eternity. You will be exactly in the situation you are in now, separated from God. But this is not the desire of Jesus, which is what this story shows us. Because after his resurrection, when he comes for Peter, he doesn't write him off, he doesn't ignore him, he's not ashamed of him. Instead, he finds him on a beach, and after they eat a meal together, there's likely two standing in by a fire, maybe reminding Peter of when he denied Jesus at a fire. It's probably Peter and Jesus. It's the first time they've been together since his denial and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And you got to imagine Peter's soul is so scared and embarrassed. He's just so vulnerable. Peter is the one in the relationship at this moment that's so vulnerable. And he waits to hear the words of Jesus like a prisoner waiting to hear the verdict of the court. And then Jesus says the question that would wound him to the heart initially... The question that would heal him and bring him back to life, and the question that Peter would carry to his grave, and I think the question he asks you and I this morning Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? See, that's not what I would have asked. I would have initially hooked back up with Peter and said, I knew it. I told you. Where were you when I needed you? You know, you have a big mouth. I would have said, Peter, are you sorry for what you did? Jesus doesn't say, Peter, do you promise to never do that again? Are you going to try really hard, Peter? He doesn't say, Peter, you know, how much money have you been putting in the offering plate? He doesn't ask Peter about the services or the projects or the achievements or the triumphs or any of those other things that we're tempted to think that count for so much in our walk with God. The first thing he says when he sees Peter is a simple question. Peter, do you love me? And Jesus reverses the relationship in a sense. Instantly, Peter goes from being vulnerable to Jesus in the relationship, becomes a little vulnerable as he puts kind of that big potato out there and waits for Peter's answer. Do you love me? And here's what he does. He gives Peter another try, a second chance. Now, Peter knows what he's done. Jesus understands you and I. He understands how we get scared, that we can become ashamed sometimes, that we don't want to be known as the Jesus freak. And yet, with all of that, with all of the things that he could press you on, he asks one simple question, do you love me? And see, if you know the story, when Peter re-identifies himself with Jesus when he comes out of his hiding, when he determines for real this time that it does not matter what the cost is, he becomes the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. You are here because of Peter's willingness to stop hiding, to go public with his faith, not not in some goofy kind of religious way, but man, what if the followers of Jesus would just come out of hiding and go public in their faith? See, Peter was no longer ashamed. he was willing to pick up his cross and follow. And the world was changed. So this week, after reading of Peter's shame and then his re-identification and his restoration, I just kept thinking, is this the answer to the question Jesus asked Paul about what it is that keeps us from being baptized? About public, what is it that keeps us all from more publicly following Jesus, clearly identifying ourselves with him? Is it the cost and is it the shame? Paul would later write, Paul would later write of what he had to overcome in terms of shame, in terms, in order to be a disciple, the shame he had to endure, the losses he had to suffer. And yet, Paul came to a simple faith statement. I want you to hear this. Paul came to a simple faith statement. He famously concluded, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says, look. I'm not ashamed anymore because it's the only hope. And so my question to you guys this morning and to me as I wrestled with it this week, and I know it's a loaded word and I know it's a strong word, here's the question. Just, Just allow it to sink in because it's Jesus that's asking. Are you ashamed to be known as a follower of Jesus? Has your following of him, your disciple nature, been done from the bushes? Is it all in your head but no one would even know? Is that why we don't get in the water? Is that why those of us that have strayed far from God would never get rebaptized Because that would mean people would know I haven't been perfect. Is that why those of us that have never been baptized would go, Well, you know, I'm a grown man. I'm going to look kind of silly getting in the water. This shirt's not going to fit me well when I get wet. You know, what is it? I can't help but think at some level there's some shame involved in it for us to publicly declare our allegiance with this man if there's a cost. And I can't help but wonder what kind of movement would be launched if his followers would just stop hiding. So I kept studying that question this week. What are we ashamed of? What is it that keeps us from just being publicly identified with Jesus? And as I did... I came across a name I haven't heard in some time. I really hadn't thought about this name probably in at least a decade. Rachel Scott. Anybody remember that name? There's a picture we'll put up here of Rachel. Rachel Scott was one of the 13 victims that were killed by uh, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold at Columbine High School. Believe it or not, almost 20 years ago now. 1999. Now, if you're old enough to remember that tragedy, in the midst of it, a story emerged about Rachel Scott, that she was a, a Christian girl who was asked by the killers if she was a Christian, and when she professed that she was, she was martyred for her answer, and it was a nice story. And the Christian culture, I'm not a big fan of the Christian culture. In fact, I know sometimes I'm frustrating to people because I'm not a big fan of the Christian culture, but boy, the Christian culture, man, they globbed onto this story, boy. Um, High school youth groups, right, began a whole movement, right, asking kids, is their faith? Would you say yes? She said yes. Was their faith as strong as Rachel's? Would they take a bullet for Jesus? And then, you know, I, I, I get cynical sometimes, right, and maybe you do too, and you hear these stories, and controversy began to swirl. I mean, what was the killer's agenda? Were the killers just anti christian just trying to kill Christians? Or maybe it was just the Christians and the jocks? And then people started because they're cynical to ask about Rachel Scott. I mean, do we really know she said that? Is this story just contrived, made up? Now look, If we have learned anything over the last 20 years since this happened about the 24-hour news cycle? Here's what we know. Uh, Lots of stories, it seems like more than the majority of stories, especially in the immediate aftermath of tragedy, are misreported or contrived, right? Our president has a term for that, fake news. And so, In all the controversy over what really happened and if it mattered, over the last couple, you know, nearly two decades now, the Rachel Scott name just kind of went away. Until, as I discovered this week, last year when they made a movie about this, some two decades later with two decades of information in the rearview mirror, uh, maybe some clarity and the reason the movie came up in my work this week was, and I hadn't heard about it, maybe, maybe you're more in tune to these things, but I hadn't heard of it until then, is the movie that came out was entitled, I Am Not Ashamed. And so as I worked on shame in the Christian walk, I just kept coming across this movie and this book. Rachel Scott, it turns out, and this is so, guys, this is so good. Bear with me, I just, I'm so excited about this. I was working on it all week. It's just so enticing to my heart. Rachel Scott, it turns out, in many ways, was not the poster child for Christianity. She was not the the you know the queen of the plastic one-fit size fits all milk toast everything's just fine what would Jesus do christian religious girl In many ways the first stories about her 20 years ago were not nearly complete enough to understand who she was what she did or how she lived she became famous just because of one answer she gave at the end of her life but that's not the story here's the story Rachel grew up in a religious house all right her dad was a pastor, but in her pre-high school impressionable years, her dad succumbed to the same temptations that, that escaped no man, and he desired no longer to be identified with the things of Jesus, and he left the family high and dry with little money and no hope. And for some time, the Scots family became thrift store shopping, praying just to get by kind of people. And you can imagine for a young girl that was Rachel's age, to have her pastor dad just take off and leave the family. It left her as a little more than a doubter in the God of her father. And so, Rachel does what most kids do in that situation. Rachel starts to get her identity from people that were more important to her, the popular kids, the good-looking boys. And while well, she does what kids do, until her mom starts to discover the path that she's on and her way to clean her up is to send her off to to the country to be with her aunt and their very high-functioning, faith-filled family. Now, as you can imagine, if you are a young high schooler and you're hanging out with the cool kids and you're just starting to become popular, the last thing you want is a summer filled of no drinking and no smoking, but that's what Rachel got. And the film does a good job of bringing the story to life. So what I'm gonna do is show you a couple clips, if that's all right, just along the way here. Here is Rachel in the country, wrestling with her identity, hiding out in a barn away from her family, confused. I just wanted to be alone. For four hours? Rachel, what's really going on? I just want to help. Well, you can't. You would never understand your family's perfect. Sorry. It wasn't supposed to be like that. Sometimes I don't know who I am. And it's not like I'm trying to do the wrong thing. I just can't help it. I used to try so hard to get it all together, but none of that worked. I had to let God in. I've done the whole church thing. I know about Jesus. I know it sounds crazy and it's really hard to explain, but it's about truly living a life for Jesus. And when you do that, you'll have this sense of peace. I don't know. That's just what worked for me. I was that same kid in the 80s. I came to know who Christ was. And yet, I, ha- I had all my friends that that were cool and fun and and were doing things that I wanted to be a part of. And I, and I was in that same place, not knowing who I, who I was, where I was going, what I should do. It was one thing on the outside, but I didn't really want my friends to think I was different than them. Or, and so I just kind of kept, my faith was all inside. And I've shared with many of you over the years until this one night on the fourth floor of Hardenburg Hall when the party was raging and I just had this conviction in my heart and I found, wound up in a stairwell crying, going, I remember screaming at Jesus going, why won't you leave me alone? and we wrestled it out, man, until he won. He's really strong sometimes. And I just decided, look, I got to start telling people who I am. I have to stop being ashamed of Jesus. I just got to put myself, I don't got to be weird, but I can just start saying to people, you know what, I got to tell you, something happened. I'm following Jesus. I know that sounds crazy, but let me just tell you what that means for me. That was my moment it was in the hallway staircase that night when i said it i'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ anymore because the truth is it's the only power my friends have any chance of encountering that might might save them and so for rachel her moment of confessing and believing it comes in the movie in her cousin's little country church when she confesses with her lips when she believes with her heart when she repents and turns and changes and you'll see in the clip she even does a little a little self baptism a metaphorical baptism check it out I'm sorry for everything that I've done. Jesus, I ask you, forgive me. And I ask you to come into my life. Father, use me to be a light to the world. I'm not a big fan of Christian movies because they tend to be very cheesy. And when we watched this with my family this week, one of my kids said, that is cheesy. (laughs) Until, because you hear her talking to herself, right? How do they know what she was saying to herself? Here's how they know. Because when Rachel came to faith at her aunt's house, her aunt gave her a journal. In the entire movie, every time you hear her talking to herself in the movie, it is just simply words that she wrote herself in, in her journal. She spoke of that morning at that church saying, something drew me so powerfully to the altar. I didn't want to go up there, but I was getting called, called forward by this power of God. In fact, we have a, pa- a picture of this is the journal. Her mother found the journal in her backpack um, sometime after she was dead. The journal itself had a bullet hole in it. And so what I discovered this week is that the Rachel Scott story, as much as I don't want to buy into the, 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 the whole pomp and circumstances of it, it was not about a, a girl saying a couple words on the day of her shooting. Uh, it was about a, a regular 17-year-old girl trying to walk, struggling to walk out her faith, and, and to struggle with the shame of being a high school kid trying to fit in and follow Jesus at the same time. The whole movie is based off of interviews and journal entries in her diary as she struggles to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to read you all the entries. I'm just gonna read two of them to you because I'm reading this going, this girl is deeper than I am. I mean, there's this is brilliant. one I called my son, and I'm like, "You gotta read this journal entry. Let me read this one to you, okay?" Because this shows you, if you haven't wrestled these three things through already, you will eventually wrestle these three things through in trying to follow Jesus. Here's what she wrote: trying to follow God, but also not wanting to, you know, not wanting to have any cost associated with it. She goes, "Dear God, I promise that I will not drink this Friday when I go out with Stephanie. This is so tempting. I want to go so bad." And, well, I thought about it, as you would know, and I thought that since you would forgive me anyways, I might as well just do it. By the way, this is in the Bible, this whole, these stories, these concepts, right? Then I realized that you'll always forgive, but you might not let it go unpunished. And then I decided not to do it strictly out of fear. Then I thought about it more and thought that if I did it out of fear, it wouldn't be done because I loved you and obeyed you and followed you. And so that's my reason for not going now. And I know that, I will always be faced with temptation, but because I love you, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? I obey you and I follow you and I will not fall into the core of it. Thank you, Father, your child, Rachel. 17 years old. And as you read the journal, you get to know this young woman in her heart. You can buy the journal. It's absolutely mind-blowing. You get to know her heart and her struggles and her eventual victory. When she decides she's not going to have sex with her cool boyfriend, he drops her. When she starts trying to love the unlovely in her school instead of just hanging out with the cool kids, well, Rachel starts picking up her cross and identifying what Jesus started to cost her something. She loses her boyfriend. She walks in and finds her her best friend in high school sleeping with her boyfriend. She finds out that the rest of the in crowd no longer has any real interest in her anymore. And again, the journal. Can I read you from this 17-year-old girl's journal? She said this, I've lost all of my friends at school. Now that I've begun to walk my talk, they make fun of me. But you know what, it's all worth it to me. I'm not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. I'm not gonna justify my faith to them, and I'm not gonna hide the light that God has put in me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies for me to be with my best friend, Jesus, then that's fine with me. You know, I always knew that part of being a Christian was having enemies, but I never thought that my friends were gonna wind up being the enemies. It's all good. I'm just a loner now at school. I just wish someone from Breakthrough, that was her youth group, went to to my school. Always in Christ, Rachel Joy. And she picked up her cross. And she walked with Jesus. And there's so many great quotes in this journal, you should check it out. There's this one thing, when her mom, after she died, her mom was moving furniture in her room and when she turned her dresser around, she found a handprint of Rachel's hand, from when she was like a little girl, like five or six and she had traced her hand and she wrote in her hand, these hands belong to Rachel Joy Scott and will someday touch millions of people's hearts. This girl who lost her shame, she, she would write of that over and over, how she was done being ashamed about Jesus. And she began to so closely communicate with God that that she started saying some weird prophetic things. Okay, listen. I don't, as Brian Davis in our church once famously said, I don't know if you have you have room in your worldview for this, but Rachel started writing in her journal. God, I, it seems clear to me that I only have about a year left here. About a year before she was killed. In fact, she constantly drew. Her favorite doodling thing was a rose. On the day she was killed, she drew this picture. It's the rose she kept drawing with her eyes over it and 13 blood-filled tears. There were 13 victims at Columbine. In fact, before they found this picture, somebody called the Scott family and said, the Lord keeps giving me this picture of Rachel and tears and a rose. You see, she was just, she wasn't perfect. She was a real person with real struggles trying to decide if she was too ashamed to follow Jesus, if if being being ashamed of what it would represent, it was just too big a cost for her to bear. But she decided to bear it. And so as we get ready to close, I'm just going to show you the trailer, and maybe it'll inspire you to come out of the bushes. Good morning! It's Tuesday, April the 20th, 1999. We have a clear, sunny spring morning in the Denver Metro. When the bombs blow up, it's gonna be awesome. If only we would have reached them sooner, <laughs> or or found this cave Pain, pain, go away. Come again another day. Is this some kind of prank? Well, Rachel, where's your god now? I want to be a light, but it feels so dark. What's up, Four Eyes? Rachel, that's amazing. I've always been drawn to hands, and I think it's because that's the way that we touch people. I have this theory that if one person can go out of their way to show compassion, it could start a chain reaction. I'm Rachel. In Littleton, Colorado, where there has been a school shooting. Do you still believe in God? life for me and I will give my life to him. See I dismiss the kids because it's not a kid's story. It's a real human being story about deciding that it was worth the cost. Here's what I learned this week. Being not ashamed was not how she died, it was about how she lived. To just say that it was her last words that counted dismisses everything her death is not what changed the world her life did so could yours here was one of her journal entries I have this theory that if one person can go out of their way to show compassion then it would start a chain reaction of the same and since this little girl died this 17 year old girl died An organization begun in her name called Rachel's Challenge has presented an anti-bullying message to nearly 22 million kids around the world. This is why your kid's high school is not the same as when it was when you went there. And so my question to you today, as we get ready for the baptisms in two weeks, is it time for you to stop hiding? to stop being too cool, to stop worrying about what everybody might think about you. Jesus asks the same question, do you love me? Jesus asks the same question, what is it that keeps you from being baptized? Let's stand and close this all.